icon, Pastor Josh here. I am excited to still be in Romans 8. Uh, and so uh, give you a little update on our Roman series. Uh, in this series, we planned to go all the way through chapter 9 and a little bit into chapter 10. Uh, but to be honest, as I was reading through and kind of looking at the rest of Romans 8, I think there's so much here that it would not do it justice for us to just take it in one big chunk. And so what we're going to do is actually the rest of this Roman series for the next three or four weeks uh, for this series, we're actually going to close it out uh, in Romans 8. And we're going to look at small little verses here and really explore some of, the, some of the richness that's here for us. And so we're going to look at verses 31 and 32 today. Um, so that's a little update. Also, want to let you know, today, uh, our new worship director, Kyle Norvell, starts. Uh, it is his first Sunday uh, in his role, and so he's leading worship for us in person. I would encourage you, whenever you can, I would to, to come back to in-person services. Welcome him and his family. He's got a wife and three kids, and uh, they just pulled in, and so they're super excited, and he's going to be such a gift to our church. So I'd encourage you to come back to in-person services and, and see the, the gift that God has given us in Kyle and in his family. Well, uh, let, me, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is always sufficient for us, even in our weakness, God. I thank you that your word shows us things about you that corrects our thinking that ignites our affections, and I pray that today you would do just that, God. That as we explore your, your posture toward us, God, and the ways in which you have given us such rich grace, God, that you would ignite our hearts, that you would correct our thinking and even our outlook on our real life, and that we would trust you all the more. God, where there is suspicion in our hearts of you, would you correct that? Would you convict us of that unbelief? Would you give us the faith to see who you are, not just for us, but toward us, God? God, we trust you for this time and ask that your spirit would help us. Would you unite your power with my weak words and cause the fruit of hope to be born in our life together as a church? We love you, Lord, and we entrust our time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I wonder if uh, in some of your close relationships, if there's been a moment in which it was clarified and shown for you that this person really loved you, that you had a moment in the relationship in which they, they did some act or gave some gift in which you knew, and it was, it was beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person was there for you. Uh, I, I have that moment in my, uh, in my marriage. And so uh, my wife, Courtney, uh, we dated for about a little bit over a year. And our dating relationship was really, really tough. Uh, we are very much not alike. Uh, we took a compatibility test in our premarital counseling, and we got like a 6%. Um, so we are not compatible. The, if we would have found each other on online dating, the algorithms would have never matched us. But God by, God, by his grace, actually did match us. And so, as you can imagine, our dating relationship was, uh, it was good, but it was also, it was filled with a, a lot of difficulty. And I remember, you know, we got engaged, and we were engaged for about uh, four months or so. And the night before our wedding, my wife gave me this, uh, this little treasure box. And in this treasure box was 
uh, filled with certain things that kind of kind of mementos from our dating relationship. And also in it was this journal that I didn't know she was keeping. And this journal kind of tracked through and memorialized our entire dating relationship all the way up until the day before our wedding. And in that journal was all of the difficulty, all of the good, all of the really bad. And then at the end of that journal, the, the last journal entry that she put in there for, for me was, was the day before our wedding. And she wrote out, you know, a lot, a lot of different thoughts. And then she ended it with, see you at the altar, Courtney. And as I, you know, read through that journal and was able to see how she was keeping track of and memorializing all of the good things and all of the bad things, to be able to flip through that and revisit and relive some of those difficulties and to have her still end that journal with that phrase, see you at the altar. That's when I knew she was in this with me. That I knew that her love for me was not going to be dependent on how easy our marriage was or how, how, how easy our life was. That, that she had already been through the hard stuff. She had already been through the difficult stuff with me and still... At the end of that, she says, see you at the altar. Those types of things kind of assure us in relationships that we have someone who's with us, who's for us, who loves us. And God wants you to have that as well. That, that, that God the Father, he wants to assure you that he loves you, that he's for you, and he has done amazing things. Amazing things walking through uh, difficulty, and that's, a, that's an understatement, in order to be with us, in order that our, his love for us would be shown. And, and that's some of what we're going to see today. And before we jump into it, I just, I just want to ask you, because today is all about, you know, the, the title of today's sermon is called Released from Doubt. And I'm not talking about intellectual doubt, necessarily. I'm more talking about the emotional and the spiritual doubt that many of us can have. That there's this emotional cloud, this emotional dullness that we don't quite believe, not, not, not mentally, not intellectually, but from our hearts, that God loves us, that God is for us and with us, all of us, that we can run to him, we can look to him in, in our time of need, and he will provide what we need. There's this emotional doubting in the relationship and we become kind of this, this low-key suspicious of who God is. Right? I mean, that's how it started in the beginning. That was one of the original sins of Adam and Eve is that in the end, they, they were suspicious of who God is. That's what, that's what Satan, the serpent, tried to show Eve or try to convince Eve of that, hey, you can't trust God. You need to be suspicious of him. He has ulterior motives. You can't really know what he's trying to do or what he is towards you. And Adam and Eve believed that and sin came into the world. And so we've got to address this, this deep-seated suspicion, this emotional doubt that we have. And we address it by looking at some things that God has done. And that's what we're going to look at in the text today. And so uh, let, let, let's go ahead and jump in. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? So this is a transition statement that Paul uses in the text. And he's used this 
all throughout Romans, whenever he posits a question, he's usually transitioning into a, a new section. And for this, when he says these things, remember, this is a letter that's being read. He's talking about everything he's already said. And he basically comes to this conclusion of, what shall we say to these things? These things are wonderful. What, what conclusions can we draw from everything that we've been going through throughout all of these eight chapters? And the first conclusion that he gives is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is a, this is a really interesting conclusion for Paul to draw based off of everything that he's written so far. Because remember, this is a letter that's being written to Christians in Rome. And in this time, the Roman Empire was run by uh, the Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, you know that he was not a great guy. He was a terrible emperor, uh, at least for Christians. And so it's really interesting that Paul would, be, would uh, conclude, after everything he's written, that God being for us posits the question, who can be against us? Because it seems as if the Roman Christians would have heard that and said, I know exactly who's against us. Nero. This is right before Nero's already begun his persecution, but the, 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 the full throttle Neronian persecution is about to happen. And friends, Nero was, he hated Christians so much that he would literally, after killing them, would dip them in wax, hang them in his banquet hall, and light them on fire in order to light his parties and his banquets. And so the Roman Christians hear this sentence and you got to wonder, they're thinking, I know exactly who could be against us. It seems as if the world is against us. It seems as if the very systems of power are set against us, not just socially, but physically. They want to kill us. And I think there's, there's some of that in Christians today, that we do feel a sense of opposition in our culture and in our world. And certainly, to be honest with you, Christians definitely have a, a, martyrdom, a martyrdom complex or persecution complex that any sort of difficulty or opposition, all of a sudden we're being persecuted. Uh, that is true, but also uh, there is real opposition that's happening in our world today towards the Christian faith. And you know this. You, living your real life in Seattle as a Christian, is going against the grain. You believing and taking the Bible as your reality, as the living word from the true and living God, that sets you not just apart, that sets you against much of the culture today. And I think we feel that, especially in Seattle. And, and I think Christians are beginning to feel a little bit afraid, are beginning to feel a little bit intimidated. And that's why, if I can just be honest with you, I think a lot of Christians in this city want to leave, want to go move to Idaho because we are intimidated by the idolatry of our city, by the opposition of our city. And friends, from this text, we can see there is no reason to be intimidated. There is no reason to feel afraid of the idolatry and of the opposition of our city. And we're going to talk a lot about that in our fall series coming up. But, but, but for today, the conclusion is this. Who can be against us? Who can really be against us as Christians? Who can hold back the gospel and the church from advancing if God 
is for us. What are we afraid of? What are, what are we shrinking back for? We should feel called and committed to our city and to reach this culture because God is for us. So it doesn't matter what level of opposition we have. It doesn't matter how we are, how we are constantly going against the, the currents of culture and we feel like we are walking into the wind, constantly being pushed back and tested. None of that matters ultimately because God is for us. That in God you have an advocate. You have a helper. Remember whenever God was delivering the Israelites from Egypt and he, and he says to Moses, just be silent. I am your soldier. I will fight on your behalf. Do you believe that? That because of Jesus Christ who has washed you clean as a Christian, who has saved you, and you have now come into the family of God like everything we've uh, explored in these last couple weeks, that you now don't just get to come to God in relationship, but he actually moves towards you in all of who he is, in his power, in his sovereignty, in his providence, is going to be working for you. That yes, you're walking against the winds of culture, but you have the wind of the Holy Spirit at your back pushing you forward. If God is for us, who can be against us? That God is working for our good here in this city. That as you meet opposition as a Christian, which you will, if you are living out your faith, if you are actually following Jesus faithfully in real life, you will meet opposition. And Paul's conclusion here, based off of every rich theological statement he's already said in this whole book, is to say, God is for you. God is for you. And so whoever you think is against you cannot stand. Cannot stand. Will not ultimately triumph over us as a church and as Christians. God is for us. And then another conclusion he gives he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so not only do we have God for us, but God is actually, uh, in order to communicate his love, which is what I talked about at the beginning here, he has given something over to us. And do you hear the richness of this language? He who did not spare Meaning that God was not, was not stingy. That, that, that him giving over his son, which we're going to explore here in a second, was not, him being, it was not the son being wrested from his grasp. That he did not spare. He opened himself up. What he had to give, he gave freely. He did not spare. And not only what did he not spare? His own son. You see, we as Christians believe, and we've explored this before, especially in our icon groups, but we as Christians believe that God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that there is one God, and that this, this idea of the Trinity is this, this relationship of eternal, free, uncoerced, 
celebrative love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's been going on for eternity, from before time began. And there's this relationship between the Father and Son within which they are delighting in one another, rejoicing in one another's perfections and beauty. It's a relationship of love. And this own Son is the one who God did not spare, did not take off the table, but actually gave over to us. And this has the language of Genesis 22. Do you remember? Genesis 22. Whenever God is calling Abraham to uh, sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Listen, listen to this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Do you hear the... The emotional language there. Take your son, the knife goes in, your only son, turning the knife, Isaac, turning the knife, whom you love, turning the knife. It's a statement in which it's meant to, to pierce our hearts and to see the emotions and the weight that Abraham had to be feeling in that moment. Take your son. And with each, each phrase, it's a turning of the knife of how much difficulty and pain there is in what God is about to ask of Abraham. Your only son, Isaac, the one you named, the one whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice. And as we know, God ends up sparing Isaac and giving over a lamb. And then God says this to Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And that's exactly what God is trying to show us here in Romans 8. That in the same way in which I, Abraham was able to demonstrate to God that he feared God alone, that he he revered God as God and would submit to him at all costs, even if giving over his very own precious son. The father is saying here in this Romans 8 text that his love for you has been demonstrated in the fact that he has given over his own son. And so we can, in the same way that God said, now I know that you fear me, we can say back to God, you gave your own son, now I know that you love me. Now I know that there is no reason to be suspicious of you because you have opened, you have bankrupted heaven in giving your own son. You did not spare the riches of your love as you gave over your son, Jesus Christ, but gave him up for us all. Gave him up on the cross. And of course the son willingly did this, but the father releasing the son over to death for us all in order that we might be saved. And what's the conclusion in this? In this great rich thought as you, uh, the generosity of God's love and grace to give his own son, what's the conclusion? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if God gave his own son, if he did not spare his richest and greatest possession, how will he not now also with him give us 
all things, anything we need, anything that we need. So this suspicion in our heart that God is not, that, that, that he has ulterior motives, that he's not really for us, he's not really with us, he doesn't really love us, finds no place to stick on this type of truth. Because he already gave over his son, what else will he not also with him give us? Be before us. It's like, it's like my daughter, you know. If I gave to her one of my prized possessions, which I'm going to be honest with you, is this set of Charles Spurgeon sermons. It's, it's on my bookshelf, and I love it. It's one of my prized possessions. If she turned 18, and, she, and I gave that to her as a gift, I feel like such a nerd right now saying that that's my prized possession, but it is. And I gave that to her and said, hey, I want you to have this as a, as a gift. And if she knew how much those sermons meant to me, how many times the Lord has used those sermons to lift my soul and to give me faith and trust in him again, how, how he has used those five volumes to encourage me in the faith and how much I treasure those, if she saw me give those over and then a, a few weeks later came back and asked for like 50 bucks for gas, would, would she need to be suspicious? Would she need to have questions in her mind on whether I'm going to want to give her what she needs? No, because I've already demonstrated the generosity of my heart toward her. And that's what Paul is saying here, that God has already demonstrated the generosity of his heart. And so this suspicion that we have of him, this emotional doubt that he doesn't really love us, it doesn't find a place to stick with truth like this. And so for you, let, 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 let's get some, some real life on this. Are you suspicious in your prayer life? Are, when you go through your real life, in your marriage, in your job, in your family, in your friendships, and you encounter difficulty and pain, you have something in that relationship that is, that is causing difficulty or division, or you have some sort of uh, mental illness or, or, or need, or you have some sort of uh, doubt or hurt that's lingering, do you bring that to God? Like, like really, do you bring your real-life problems to God? Or do you just flippantly say a prayer, like a, a little a bullet shot up? Yeah, Lord, will you just please just help me in this situation? Will you help me in this relationship? Lord, will you help me with this feeling? Or do you really bring it to him with, with, with hands open, saying, Father, this is my need. I'm in this relationship, and I'm hurt. I'm walking through life with this burden on me, and I, I can't seem to shake it. This anxiety is dominating me. This, this fear, this difficulty at work, it's, it's messing up and lingering and bleeding into the rest of my life. Do you bring that to God with the expectation that he can actually do some things in you that will be of help? Or are you just trying to figure it out yourself? You just run to whatever you can do or whatever this world can provide in order to just kind of get you Because Paul here is, is encouraging us to run to our Father and to leave behind 
a scarcity mindset. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about uh, you know material scarcity. Certainly, we ask for God for to provide for us, and we trust Him for that. But I'm talking about in general, a scarcity mindset that going to God ultimately will produce nothing in our real lives. No real fruit, no real assurance, no real joy, no real real resolution in our relationships or in our difficulty at work or in our anxiety. And we have a scarcity mindset that God's not going to do anything. Paul here is saying, do you see what he's already done? Do you see what he's already given? If you could see the, the pain in which he get, the, the pain in which he endured in order to give over his son for you. If you could see the generosity of his heart demonstrated in the act, you would not fear to ask anything of him. You would trust him for everything. You would see that if he gave his own son to save me, a sinner, if that was the place in which this relationship started, surely I can run to him with every burden, every anxiety, Every relational difficulty, every fear, every burden that weighs me down, of course I can run to my father, and I can expect that he's going to be for me, and he's going to give me what I need. And that what I need may be different than what I think I need, certainly, which we can talk about that. But he's going, he's going to, as a, as a wise, loving, and generous father, give me what I need. That I don't have to be suspicious of my God. I don't have to twist his arm. What a relief is that? You don't have to, you don't have to twist God's arm into being for you and with you and giving to you what you need. Because that's the religion of every other, that's the, that's the framework of every other religion. Do this, do this, sacrifice that, give up this, practice this, and then maybe your God will come through for you. No, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible comes through for you out of grace. Out of grace. Not because you're doing anything, but because of what is in his heart towards you. And so friends, this, this emotional doubt and this, this low-key suspicion of whether God is for us and whether, whether he's going to come through us, it's only resolved when we look and stare at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we see that he's given us everything. He's already the, the down payment, if I can put it that way, of his son covers everything. And so anything that I now need, any, anything that I need from him to get by, to get through, to flourish, to be released from anxiety and shame, I can, I can run to him and believe that he's going to give me what I need. That's, that's what this text is encouraging us to. And so let me, let me give just a, a real-life application on this. If you believed that God was for you in Jesus Christ, that he was for you, and so because of that, there is in the end no opposition that will stand or triumph over you. And if you believed that because Jesus has been given over, and that's the demonstration of God's generosity and love towards you, and so you can ask of him whatever you need. You can run to him in every situation. What that could produce in your heart, in your life, is lightheartedness. I wonder when the last time you felt lightheartedness. I wonder when the last time was that you felt carefree. 
Well, friends, when we receive this end, we are able to have our shoulders drop, not be so tense. We're able to take a deep breath and be, in a sense, carefree because we have the wind of God's advocacy at our back, even as we're walking into the winds of culture. And because we have God's generous love toward us, always working for us, we can be carefree and lighthearted. We can, in the most faithful way possible, relax. And so I, I would encourage you this week, what, what, is there any opposition in your life to your Christian faith that you feel intimidated by? Whether it's in our city or in culture or even in family relationships, how can you bring into that, into your mind, the advocacy and the support of God that he's for you? He will not let you ultimately be destroyed. And then also, how, what do you need? Where are you at in your heart and in your mind? What relational or mental or emotional needs are present there that you can bring to your father and that you can bring to him with a sense of expectation that he will come through? Even if it's in a way that we don't quite expect he will come through. He's demonstrated that in his own son. And as we give ourselves to those practices of coming to God, of believing that his advocacy for us makes every opposition fall flat, that his love and generosity toward us means that we never have to be afraid to ask him of anything or to think that we won't be able to survive. We don't have to have that scarcity mindset. When we do that, we can be lighthearted. And what a witness that would be in our Christian lives. In a world full of care, full of burden and heaviness. To be faithfully lighthearted and joyful. Let's do that this week, friends. Let's run to our God who has given us everything we need. Who has demonstrated that in all of the difficulty of giving over his own son, he still went through that. And so now, what can we not run to him for? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given over your own Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that the sheer generosity of your heart in that would be seen by us. That we would take that as evidence of how you are toward us and for us, God. And that that would in our hearts faith to run to you to trust you and that as we run to you we'd be able to unload our cares and burdens on you God be lighthearted, be carefree in the most faithful way possible God God what a gift it is to be in Jesus Christ would you help us to trust you would you help us to run to you would you remove suspicion from our hearts, remove the dark cloud of emotional doubt, and give us confidence in how you are toward us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen.